0: What happens when a wolf becomes a sheep? A wolf becoming a sheep was the great change we were thinking about last week. and Some of the boys and girls drew me great pictures of wolves and sheep. Saul so, uh, the wolf uh, hunting down Christians becomes Paul the sheep, uh, a Christian missionary. And as we saw last time, there are some things about the Apostle Paul's conversion that are unique. uh, Things that won't be true of our conversions. If we're to go to heaven, we need to be converted. And while that will involve, or, or if we're converted, it did involve a certain moment when we passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. That moment probably won't be accompanied by a a voice from heaven and a blinding light. In fact, we may not even be conscious of exactly when that great change happens within us. But there are also some things about Paul's conversion that will be true of every conversion. True conversion, as we saw last week, is a work of God, ultimately, ultimately. It also involves seeing Jesus as he really is, uh, not as we uh, perhaps once uh, were used to thinking of him as. And true conversion involves coming face to face with our sin. Paul, the, the persecutor of the church, had to face up to what he had been doing. So have those things happened to you. Has God worked in your life to show you Jesus as he really is uh, and to bring you face to face with your sin and to enable you to put your trust in Jesus Christ? Well, if so, praise God. Uh, And if he has done these things, then your life will look different going forward. But how will it look different and that brings us back to, to the question of what happens when, when either a, a wolf, someone who, who persecutes the church, or, or just an, an ordinary unbeliever among our, our friends and family in the community becomes one of Christ's sheep. And that brings us to our first point this morning, which is what a sheep looks like. What a sheep looks like. Is a Christian just somebody who, 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 who uses different words or is a Christian someone who, who dresses differently? Is a Christian uh, someone who, who now goes to church when they didn't before? Or, or, or what, what is this change that happens? Uh, what does it look like? Uh, boys and girls, maybe it sounds a, a bit of a, a silly question to ask, what does a sheep look like? Because you know what a sheep looks like. Uh, but we're, we're using uh, that word the way the Bible uh, sometimes does to describe a, a Christian. Uh, so we're asking the question, what does someone who truly loves Jesus look like? Well, as soon as Paul was converted, it completely changed his attitude to God, to the church and the world. And it will do the same for us. And even if we've been Christians for as long as we can remember, the evidence of whether our faith is genuine will be seen in these three areas, in how we relate to God, to the church and the world, compared to how people around us do. And I hope that that these things will be encouraging for you. Uh, Yes, if you don't see these things in your life, that should be a challenge. uh, But... But, but I trust that many of you will be able to look at your lives and see these, see these marks and take encouragement from that, uh, that you have experienced just uh, the same uh, powerful work of God in you that the, that the Apostle Paul himself experienced. So how did conversion change the life of the Apostle Paul? Well, we saw last week that it changed his attitude to God. It changed his attitude to who God was. He had asked the question, Who are you, Lord? And he received the answer, I am Jesus. The Jesus he thought was deluded or dangerous was actually the uncreated Son of God speaking to him from heaven. The one Paul thought was a fraud was actually God. And conversion didn't just change Paul's attitude to to who God was but to, to how someone could be accepted by God. Previous to this Paul had thought that God accepted people based on their law keeping and that to live an outwardly good and respectable life was enough to please God. But now as the Lord Jesus stops Paul in his tracks on the road to Damascus, he comes to see that salvation is God's work, not ours, that it's purely by grace. So conversion changed Paul's attitude to God, and that's the same for us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if you're one of Jesus' sheep, you'll be able to say about him as the disciple Thomas did, my Lord and my God. But then the the second thing salvation will will change is their attitude, is someone's attitude to the church. Paul had been travelling to Damascus wanting to hurt the Christians there His attitude to them was one of undisguised hatred. But the moment that he's converted, that changes. And that is demonstrated in the first word that Paul hears from a Christian after his conversion. What's the the first word that Paul hears when he becomes a Christian? Well, it's right there in verse 17. It's the word brother. Brother. Brother, and is that not amazing? Saul has been coming there with the express purpose to persecute Christians, to drag them off, to leave women, widows and children, orphans, if that's what it takes. But now he's converted and the very first thing he hears from a Christian And a Christian who's actually been quite reluctant to come and see him is the word brother. Ananias has has tried to get out of this task. He's tried to argue with the Lord, but now in obedience to God, he goes to see this arch enemy, this persecutor of the church. And he calls him brother. Because that's who Paul now is. He's a brother in Christ the church is now his family and we see in the rest of the chapter that wherever he goes he seeks out christians (coughs) just as if you went to to somewhere you'd you'd never been before and you heard that you had you had family there uh, maybe maybe in australia or somewhere and you'd never been there they'd never been here you'd never met them but but you hear that you have family there and so when you go to that place you go and look for your family and that's what Paul does here he he, he has Christian brothers and sisters that he's never met before in different cities around the place and, and where, wherever he comes to he goes to look for the Christian's Look at verse 19. After being baptized and taking food, we read that for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Paul has met the risen Jesus. He's been called to be an apostle, he's been commissioned to do a great work, but he doesn't go off and do his own thing. Rather, he goes and spends time with the disciples. And when it says disciples there, it doesn't mean the the 12 disciples. It just means Christians. And it's the same when he goes to Jerusalem. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Now they're afraid of him in Jerusalem, just like Ananias in Damascus. They too need convinced that he's a genuine convert and not an undercover spy. But Paul's heart's desire, wherever he goes, is to be with Christians. And that in itself is part of the evidence of his conversion. Someone has put it like this. I can be interested in birds without going anywhere near the local bird Watchers society. Indeed, I can refuse to have anything to do with its members and still be a very good bird watcher myself, but I cannot genuinely accept Christ and refuse to have anything to do with his people. He goes on, I cannot receive the Holy Spirit and refuse to be a member of that body. I cannot claim to love the Lord Jesus and refuse to love his saints. I cannot claim to be identified with him and refuse to be identified with his people or uh, as John Stott uh, summed it up true conversion always issues in church membership every so often people will say to me well so and so is a Christian but they don't go to church it's not that they're physically unable to but they just choose not to But it's very hard to hold such a claim alongside the New Testament. Christians who don't go to church just don't exist in the New Testament. No one tells Paul that he has to go and seek out other Christians. He does it naturally now that he's a Christian himself. And I'm so glad that for many of you getting involved in church isn't something I've ever had to tell you to do because it's something you you naturally want to do. And in fact if you hear of people who say well I'm a Christian and you don't go to church you're rightly cautious of them. I, I'm so glad that, that, that for many of you, I know that, that if you're not here, something serious must have happened to keep you away. Uh, and that if you're on a holiday, you, you tell me about other churches that you've sought out because you know that you need the fellowship of other believers. And isn't that one of the, the joys of going different places, maybe Places we've never been before, if we have the opportunity to go and meet other Christians and have fellowship with them. And that's what Paul does here. Every city he goes to, he says, where, where are my family? Where are my brothers and sisters in Christ? And of course, there's an obligation here, not just for, for new converts to join the church, But for those already in the church to welcome new people in, even if they might rather not, like Ananias here. But how we need more Ananiases and Barnabases who who by God's grace will overcome their natural reluctance and take the initiative and get alongside newcomers and new converts. Because no matter what someone may have done in the past, someone who, who walks in the church, and no matter what they may have done in the past, as soon as someone is converted, this new family relationship trumps everything else. Think of Paul when Barnabas finally convinces the, the Christians in Jerusalem that he's for real well, what had Paul done to the church in Jerusalem? He'd ravaged it. Chapter 8, verse 3, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. And so when Paul meets the Christians in Jerusalem, he would perhaps even have been meeting women he'd widowed and children he'd orphaned. Perhaps... Uh, Children who had been left cowering in the corner as Paul had smashed his way into their houses and dragged off their parents. And now Paul goes back among those people, but not as a persecutor, but as a believer. And yet there is forgiveness for him and a welcome in the church. Because when, when they realise that the same Jesus who had forgiven them has forgiven him too, well, what can they do but, but welcome him? Because salvation is by grace. So someone who's become a sheep, someone who's been genuinely converted, will have a different attitude to God, either from, from what they used to have or from those around them. They'll have a different attitude to church, not only from what they once had but different from the attitude that non-Christians and nominal Christians around them have nominal Christians those who who just go to church because it's the the done thing but, but haven't ever been born again and the third area there's the radical difference is the world not just that the things of this world will lose their attraction but that the great concern of a believer will now be the salvation of those around them. Now the practical implications of this will look different for us than they did for the Apostle Paul. Uh, He was called to be a missionary, Uh, most of us aren't, but the big principles here apply as well. And we're going to look at Paul's changed attitude to the world And ours under our second main heading this morning. And that is from a shepherd, or from a sheep to a shepherd. From a sheep to a shepherd. (coughs) Jesus not only changes Paul from a wolf into a sheep, but he calls him to be a shepherd. He calls him to be a missionary, pastor, to take the good news of Jesus to those who've never heard it before. When the Lord tells Ananias to go to Saul, Ananias basically says, Lord, I think you're making a mistake here. But how does Jesus reassure him? Verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. As I said last week, this chapter isn't just about the conversion of one man. Rather, it's about the conversion of one man in order that the gospel might go to the nations. And so Ananias goes to him and lays his hands on him. Uh, Something like scales fall from Paul's eyes. He's baptised right there and then and filled with the Holy Spirit to help him fulfil the task he's been called to. And almost immediately in verse 20, he goes to the synagogues and proclaims Jesus. And I wonder, is that what we would expect to happen? Because imagine if Paul was converted today. It's not hard to imagine that he'd he'd have spent the next 10 years being asked to give his testimony at various churches. Uh, What a dramatic conversion he's had uh, and... Uh, the, the Christian culture loves that sort of thing. I think we, we all love that sort of thing. Uh, and we, we, we rejoice in, in any conversion. Uh, and we, we love to hear of, of, of any conversion and dramatic conversions. But what we can be <coughs> less good at is equipping people to serve Seeing people move from being spiritual infants to being spiritually mature and taking on responsibility in the church uh, and in turn being used to disciple new people, We love hearing about a dramatic conversion and there's n- there's nothing wrong with that, but do we have higher expectations for someone with such a background? than simply that they'll spend uh, their next years sharing their testimony. Maybe you say, did did we not have someone here six weeks ago sharing his testimony of his conversion from drug addiction? Well, yes, but he's now an elder in his church. He he has gone on to to serve God in that way. And now everyone isn't called to eldership. But... Do we expect that, that after a, a few years uh, of being a new Christian that someone might be able to do a, a Bible study with, with someone who's just started coming to church or, or at least uh, sit in on one uh, and help out? Now, now, they may not be able to uh, and that's fine. But do we just assume that it would never happen? let's not have the mindset that new Christians will will stay baby Christians forever. Paul is converted and he instantly starts taking the gospel to those around him. Now even Paul needed training. It's something that, that we mightn't pick up just from reading Acts chapter 9 but we know from Galatians 1 that the, the many days he talks about in verse 23 were actually three years that he spent in Arabia. He tells us in Galatians 1 that after God was pleased to reveal his son to him he didn't consult with anyone but went from Damascus to Arabia and then came back again to Damascus. Uh, we don't have time today to, to go into uh, what those years of preparation might have looked like. But I just mention it as a reminder that Paul didn't go from new convert to final product overnight. Uh, and again, Paul is more like us than we might think. But he does begin to witness right away. And for the rest of our time today, we want to notice four things about his witness. Uh, while most of us aren't called to be preachers like Paul, uh, all of us who are Christians are, are called to witness to Christ as we have opportunity. And so these four things that we see about Paul's witness are things that by God's grace we should seek to emulate. So, what was Paul's witness like? Well, four things. Uh, and firstly, it was Christ centered. And we'll spend most of our time in this. It was Christ centered. Verse 20, and immediately in the synagogues, he proclaimed Jesus. It reminds us of Philip in the last chapter. Whether it was to to big crowds or one-on-one, Philip's message could be summed up by the words, Jesus Christ, and ours must be too. If someone spends any amount of time with us, do they know that we are people uh, for whom Jesus Christ means everything. Dennis Johnson, who's written the Let's Study commentary uh, on Acts for Banner of Truth, puts it like this, uh, and the quote's on your handout. He says, Christian communication with the non-Christian culture today (coughs) often focuses on points of ethical and political controversy, sexuality, abortion, and the like. Such topics, though important for society's well-being, cannot change hearts. It's a good balance, isn't it? These moral issues aren't unimportant. In fact, they're vital for the well-being of society. Uh, The church can't be silent about them, especially in a week when the Queen's birthday honours list included handing out an OBE for services to abortion reform, Uh, Which is a euphemism for helping to to force abortion legislation on a part of the UK that didn't want it. Uh, So we can't be silent about these things. But if we're being honest we, we may find it easier to talk about some of these things than to talk about Jesus. But if those are the things that we talk about most it will be no surprise if we don't see many conversions Philip's message in the last chapter could be summed up by the words Jesus Christ, so could Paul's, and so must ours. And so, what did Paul say about Jesus? The rest of the verse sums it up He is the Son of God. Now, that's a phrase. I'm sure all of us have heard before that Jesus is the son of God but, but what does it mean? Well in the Old Testament there had been this expectation of a coming king who was also God's son. In my own Bible readings during the week I was reading of 2 Samuel 7 and there God says about this coming king I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. We have the same promise in Psalm 89, which we'll sing later on. In the Bible, you also have Adam described as God's son. Adam who failed so tragically in the task that he was given. and The only hope for humanity is that a second Adam, a better Adam would come who would be tempted in a garden, but this time not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane, and who would obey God all the way to the end. So when Paul says he is the Son of God, he's not just saying that Jesus is God as well as man. He is saying that, but he's also saying that Jesus is the divine Son of God who fulfills the Old Testament hope of a better Adam and a true David. Similarly, in verse 22, we read that Paul confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And that word for prove means bringing two things together and seeing how they match up. So on one hand, you have the Old Testament and what it says about the Messiah and on the other hand, you have the, the life of Jesus, where he was born, how he lived, his betrayal, the type of death he died, his resurrection, his ascension. And Paul put these two things together and he showed how they matched up. They fitted together perfectly. Like Philip, all Paul had was the Old Testament, but that's all he needed Because the New Testament isn't plan B. The Old Testament is a book heaving with expectation of the coming Messiah. But I think we miss a lot of that today. I don't think it would be unfair to say that by and large, Christians today see the Old Testament as a book of stories that have nothing to do with Jesus. But then there's an occasional prophecy or example or appearance that is clearly talking about Jesus. But while there may be a a red line or a red thread that runs through the Old Testament and points us to Jesus, everything else is, is just black and white. So it's not that Christians today have bought the lie that Jesus isn't in the Old Testament But other than a few well-worn places, we're not used to seeing him there. What can be done to change that? I could recommend a book on the subject such uh, as Jesus on Every Page by David Murray, uh, which I reviewed on the church website this past week. Uh, Well worth getting uh, and reading but there's nothing to beat sitting regularly under the Old Testament being preached. That was actually what led to Murray writing the book Jesus on Every Page. He said that the subject had been a growing passion of his since he started sitting under his father-in-law's preaching 25 years before. He said it was so different from anything he'd ever heard before and he was so blessed by it. And I do trust that, that while our own evening services where uh, we normally work through Old Testament books, while I trust they won't be anything that you've not heard before, that they will be different from how the Old Testament is often preached. And I pray that not only will they, they bless you uh, then and there, but that they'll shape how you read the Old Testament. So Paul's proclamation is Christ-centred. Secondly, it's spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. We're told in verse 22 that Paul increased all the more in strength. And that word strength is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. So we're not to think of Paul doing all this in his own strength. It's not that he's simply using all his learning and winning intellectual arguments, but he's relying on the help of the Holy Spirit. How daunting it would be to try and speak to people about Jesus if we didn't know that the Holy Spirit has been given to help. In fact, it wouldn't just be daunting, it would be pointless. But we have the Holy Spirit. And exalting Jesus is something that the Spirit loves to do. And in fact, in this book of Acts, the people who are filled with the Spirit, it's not seen in people shouting loudly. It's not that they're necessarily charismatic as they speak. It isn't mainly that they can speak in tongues, other languages, but it's that they speak about Jesus. The book of Acts is the book, is the Acts of the risen Jesus through, by his spirit through the church. And without the spirit, we will achieve nothing. So Paul's witness is Christ-centered, it's spirit-filled. The third of our four closing points, it is courageous. It's courageous. Courageous. Imagine Richard Dawkins turning up at a packed meeting of the British Humanist Society. Uh, People have gathered there and they're just waiting for him to speak about how deluded it is to believe in God. But actually he tells them that he now believes in God and he starts giving reasons why they should believe in God too and telling them that, that far from being intellectually honest, their unbelief is actually sinful, and it's to be repented of. What would the reaction be? Well, there might be a stunned silence for, for a few seconds, people wondering, well, well, well is, is he joking here? And then, then a murmur around the crowd as they realise that he's being serious. And then... People might start to shout things. Dawkins might get get ushered off the stage. Well, that's what Paul was doing. And that's the sort of reaction he got. Verse 21, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound to the chief priests? And then in verse 29, when Paul goes back to Jerusalem after those three years, he's going back to his old stomping ground, back to his old synagogues, his old friends. But he's now saying the exact opposite of what he once said. And people who do that are hated. Who are the most despised people in the eyes of the transgender lobby? Well, there are those who have detransitioned, those who have come out and said that it was a, a terrible mistake, those who vocally denounce the community they were once part of. But that's what Paul's doing. And it takes courage. And it will take courage for some of you to say to family members, Well, things are different now because I'm a Christian. I'm not going to do that anymore because to them it might feel like a betrayal it might feel like a condemnation of them which, which even though that's not the reason you're saying it it might be in some way when you're saying that there are things that you can no longer go along with even if you're, you're not meaning to say, to say that that may well be how they'll take it they'll, they'll probably take it personally even if it's not meant personally. It's very hard to say, well, yes, I once did that, but now I'm going to do this. Paul's witness is courageous. And then finally, it's costly. It's costly. What did God tell Ananias back up in verse 16? For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And everywhere Paul goes, that happens. Verse 23. This is a bit I was telling the boys and girls about earlier. The Jews plot to kill him, and he has to escape the city in a basket. Verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Now we... We may not be at the point in the UK where people will try and kill you for speaking about Christ. Though that is the case in various parts of the world today. But it is increasingly intimidating for Christians to speak up. James Eglinton, who teaches at the University of Edinburgh, had an article in the Times yesterday entitled Politicians Must Be Free to Speak Out Against Abortion. And the reason an article like that needs to be written is that it's far from a given. And it's the sort of thing that you wonder, how much of a backlash will he get even for writing it? And there are, are many moral issues in our society, issues that are being, being forced on us, that it will be it is very hard for Christians to speak out against. You know, it's easy to speak out against them among other Christians, but but not so easy when when your social standing or or even your livelihood might suffer as a result. And as we saw earlier, these things aren't our main message, but they are where the rubber hits the road for many Christians. And yet they're not what Paul is suffering for here. Uh, And with this, we close. What was Paul suffering for? Well, he was suffering for Christ through choosing to forsake his old friends, choosing to forsake career, fame, and reputation, and to associate with a despised group of people who were seen as dangerously misguided or even as a threat to society. A group of people he describes elsewhere as the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. If you're not yet a Christian, full disclosure, this is the group of people you're being asked to associate with if you become a Christian. The scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And for those of us who are Christians, this is probably where the rubber will hit the road for many. You're not going to church this Sunday again, are you? Sure, you went last week. You're not going to miss out on what the family is doing this weekend to spend more time with Christians, are you? What are you still doing in Stranarshire? Don't you know you could make more money elsewhere? Yeah, there might not be a church you can go to, but, but don't worry about that. But Paul followed a suffering saviour, one who chose to be mistreated, not just with the people of God, but for the people of God. As he would put it later on, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And whether physically or in other ways, every true shepherd will bear those marks. And so will every true sheep. Amen. Well, let's close by singing about the divine Son of God Paul witnessed about. Turning to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, 21 to 25 on page 205. Page 205, uh, verse 21 at the top. Verse 21 reminds us of the ultimate fate of those who oppose Christ and his church. And then verse 23, we we end as we begun today singing about this glorious king. And we have the, the great reminder in verse 25 that despite what the world throws at us, Jesus seed, his offspring, those who believe in him will endure forever. So verses 21 to 25, let's stand and praise God.